Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast with more fantastic pirate adventures starring Jim Hawkins. I go on a little bit of a journey, and we talk about some really fun stuff. That's right, this week we get back into Treasure Island. I talk about a new Netflix movie called Nino Cooney. We talk about my all-time favorite D&D pod, pod group, pod group. Party, party. There it is. That's the word. Uh, D&D party, critical role. I went on a trip out to the Olympic Peninsula, and then we do a little bit of housekeeping stuff later on. But I wanted to dive right into Hawkins and his adventures, because a bunch of dirty pirates are about to tear down the farm! Hmm. Alrighty. Chapter 5. I'm still in part 1, by the way, for the record. <clears throat> Also, welcome back to Treasure Island. My curiosity in a sense was stronger than my fear, for I could not remain where I was, but crept back to the bank again, whence, sheltering my head behind a bush of broom, broom bush, I might command the road before our door. Scarcely in position, ere my enemy began to arrive, seven or eight of them running hard, their feet beating out of time. Along the road, and the man with the lantern some paces in front, three men ran together, hand in hand. Ah, oh, that's all. And I made out, even through the mist, that the middle of this man of this trio was the blind beggar. Oh, that was the blind beggar. The next moment, his voice showed me that I was right. Down with the door, he cried. Hi, hi, sir, answered two or three. And a rush was made upon the Admiral Benbow, the lantern-bearing follow. And then I could see them pause, hear speeches pass in a lower key, as if they were surprised to find the door open. But the pause was brief, for the blind man issued commands again, his voice sounding louder and higher, as if he were afire with eagerness and rage. In, 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 he shouted, and cursed them for their delay. Four or five of them obeyed at once, two remaining on the road with the formidable beggar. There was a pause with a cry of surprise, and then a voice shouted from the house, Bale's dead! But the blind man swore again, swore at them again for their delay. Satch him, some, some of you shirking lubbers, and the rest of you aloft to get the chest, he cried. I could hear their feet rattling up our old stairs, so the house must have shook with it. Probably afterwards, fresh sounds of astonishment arose. The window of the captain's room was thrown open with a slam and a jingle of broken glass. The man leaned out into the moonlight, head and shoulders, and addressed the blind beggar on the road below him. Pew! He cried. They've been before us. Someone's turned the chest allow in aloft. Is it there? Roared Pew. The money's the money's there. Blind man cursed the money. Fence fist, I mean, he cried. Where I'll tell you now how, returned the man. Here, you below there. Is it on Bill? cried the blind man again. And another fellow, probably him who had remained below to search the captain's body, came in the door of the inn. Bill's already been over all already, he said. Not left. It's these people at the end. It's that boy. I wish I put out his eyes, cried the blind man Pew. There was no time ago. They had the door, door bolted when I tried it. German. Scatter, lads, and find them. Sure enough, they've left their glim here, said the fellow from the window. Scatter and find them. Right out of the house, reiterated Pew, striking with his stick upon the road. Then there followed a great to-do through all our old inn, heavy feet pounding to and fro, furniture thrown over, doors kicked in, till the very rocks re-echoed and the men came out again, one after another on the road, and declared there were nowhere to be found. Just the same whistle that alarmed my mother and myself over the dead captain's money was once more clearly audible through the night, but this time twice repeated. I had thought it was the blind man's trumpet, so to speak, summoning his crew for the assault, but now I found it was a signal from the hillside towards the hamlet. From its effect upon the buccaneers, a signal to warn them of approaching danger. There's Dirk again, said one. Twice! We have to budge, mates. Budge, you skulk, cried Pew. Dirk was a fool and a coward from the first. You wouldn't mind him. 
They must be close by. They can't be far. You'll have your hands on it. Scat and look for them, dogs. Oh, shiver me soul, he cried. If I had eyes. If I had me eyes. Um, this appeal seemed to produce some effect, for two of the fellows began to look here and there among the lumber, but half-heartedly. I thought with half an eye on their own danger all the time, while the rest stood irresolute on the road. You have your thans a thousand, you fools, and you hang a leg. You'll be as rich as kings if you find it, and you know it's here. You stand there skulking. There wasn't one of you dead-faced, Bill, and I did. A blind man. And I'm to lose my chance for you. I'm to be a poor crawling beggar, sponging for rum, when I may be rolling in on a coach. If you had pluck of a weevil in a biscuit, you would catch them still. If you had the pluck of a weevil in a biscuit. What does that even mean? I get pure, we got the doubloons, grumbled one. Then more, I hate the blasted thing, said another. Take the George's pew and don't stand here squalling. Squalling was a word for it. Pew's anger rose so high at these objections till his last, his passion completely taking the upper hand. He struck them right and left in his blindness and his stick sounded heavily on more than one. There, in their turn, cursed back at the blind miscreant, threatened him in horrid terms and tried to catch, and tried in vain to catch the stick and wrest it from his grasp. This quarrel was the saving of us, for while it was still raging, another sound came from the top of the hill on the side of the hamlet, trembling a horse galloping. Almost at the same time, a pistol shot, flash reported, came from the hedge site. Hedge side. And that was plainly the last signal of danger, for the buccaneers turned at once and ran, separating in every direction. One seen word along the cove, one slant across the hill, and so on, so that in half a minute not a sign of them remained but Pew. Him they had deserted, whether in sheer panic or out of revenge for his ill words and blows, I know not. But there he remained behind, tapping down the road in a frenzy, groping and calling for his comrades. Finally took a wrong turn and ran a few steps past me towards the hamlet, crying, Johnny Black Dog Duck! Another few names. You won't leave old Pew, mates! Not old Pew! And then the sound of noises uh, topped the rise, and four or five riders came in sight in the moonlight, swept at a full gallop down the slope. At this, Pew saw his error, turned with a scream, and ran straight for the ditch into which he rolled. He was on his feet again in a second and made another dash, now utterly bewildered, right under the nearest of the coming uh, horses. The rider tried to save him, but in vain. Down went Pew with a cry that rang high into the night, and four hooves trampled and spurned him and passed by. He fell on his side, then gently collapsed upon his face and moved no more. Ah, poor Pew. Everybody, everybody, that's a series wrap on, a uh, uh, old, old, uh, old, what's his fucking name? Blind Eye Pew. What the fuck was his name? His name is, um, god damn it. His name is, uh, Pew. Hold on. Uh, Blind Pew. He's just, he's just Blind Pew. That's his name. His name is Blind Pew. Um, everybody, everybody raise your glasses to blind Pew. I would like to reiterate once again that I'm not drunk, I'm just an idiot. That is... That's, that's a fucking t-shirt, isn't it? I'm not drunk, I'm an idiot. Um, uh, the Going Up cast. I'm not drunk, I'm an idiot. Alright, anyway. Pew's dead. Zero's rap on Pew. I leapt to my feet and hailed the riders. They were pulling up at any rate, horrified by the accident. And I soon saw what they were. One tailing out behind the rest was a lad they had gone from the hamlet to Dr. Livesey. The rest were revenue officers, whom he had met by the way, and with whom he had had the intelligence to return at once. Some news of the Luger at Kit's Hole found its way to the supervisor dance, and set him forth that night in our direction. And to that circumstance, my mother and I owed our preservation from death. So your continued existence in life. Pew was dead. Stone dead. As for my mother, we had, her, we had carried her up to the hamlet, a little cold water and salts that soon brought her back again, and she was none the worse for her terror, though she continued to deplore the balance of the money. 
In the meantime, the supervisor rode on as fast as he could to Kit's hole, but his men had to dismount and grope down the dangle, cough, leading, uh, and sometimes supporting their horses in, in continual fear of ambushes. So it was no great matter of surprise when they got down to the hole. The lurger was already underway, though still close in. He hailed her. A voice replied, telling him to keep out of the moonlight or he would get some lead in him. At the same time, a bullet whistled close by his arm. Soon after, the luger doubled the point and disappeared. Mr. Dance stood there and said, Like a fish out of water. And all he could do was dispatch a man to be dash dash to warn the cutter. Dispatch, dispatch a man to be to warn the cutter. And that, he said, is just about as good as nothing. They've got clean off, and there's the end. Only, he added, I'm glad I trod on Master Pew's corns. For this time, he had heard my story. I went back with him to Admiral Benbow, and you cannot imagine a house in such a state of smash. The very clock had been thrown down by its fellows in the furious hunt after my mother and myself. And though nothing had actually been taken away except the captain's money bags and a little silver from the till, I could see at once that we were ruined. Mr. Dance couldn't make nothing of the scene. I got the money, you say? Well, then, Hawkins, what unfortunate were they after? More money, I suppose? No, sir, not money, I think, replied I. In fact, sir, I believe I have the thing in my breast pocket. And to tell you the truth, I should like to get it put in safety. To be sure, boy, quite right, he said. Wow, that was terrible. I'll take it if you like. I thought perhaps to Dr. Livesey I'd be in. Uh, perfectly all right, he interrupted very chilly. Perfectly all right, gentlemen and magistrate. And now I come to think of it, I might as well ride rather than myself and report to him as squire. Master Pew's dead, and when all's done, not that I'll regret it, but he's dead, you see, and people will make it out against an officer of his majesty's re revenue. If I if make it out, they can. Now I'll tell you, Mr. Hawkins, if you like, I'll take you along. I thanked him heartily for the offer, and we walked back to the hamlet where the horses were. By the time I told my mother of my purpose, they were all in saddle. Dogger, said Mr. Dent, you have a good horse. Take this lad behind you. And soon I was mounted, holding on to Dogger's belt. The supervisor gave the word, and the party struck out along the bouncing trot on the road to Dr. Livesey's house. Alrighty, it's time for me to do a little bit of housekeeping here as we take a little bit of a break between chapters of Treasure Island. If you like the Wung Upcast and you enjoy listening to audiobooks and all my little snippets and all that fun, if you enjoy any of this and you want to keep it going, there's lots of ways you can support the Going Cast. You can go to Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash going up guest. And you can become a Patreon supporter at the $5 level. You get access to the monthly live streams where we just kind of shoot the shit and talk about whatever uh, for, you know, a while. Or you can go to goingupcast.com forward slash store and purchase a mystery book or a custom audiobook reading of your choice. I'm also working on some physical merchandise. That will be going up on the show here pretty soon. I've worked out some like slogans and some things like, you know, phrases I want items to say. Um, I'm just trying to come up with some accompanying, accompanying, I'm trying to make them look good. You know, I want, I want these things to be things that people want, you know, not just things I think would be fun, things that people want. And naturally, once I have designs and mock-ups and all that fun stuff, uh, I'll have more details for you, but it's, I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm getting into it. Um, there's all that kind of fun stuff. Also, in terms of the Going Up cast, the new uh, daily chapter audiobook is right around the corner. It is going to be Christopher Paolini's Aragon. Um, we will do Clash of Kings at some point, I promise. Uh, I just wanted to take a quick Game of Thrones break um, because in my head, uh, I needed a break from Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings is significantly longer 
than Game of Thrones is, and Game of Thrones took like 25 hours to read, so we will get to Clash of Kings here in a little bit. But I wanted to read Aragon because I remember this book series being really good when I was younger, and I'm happy to report that it's not as good as I remember it, uh, which makes it very entertaining to read, and I hope you guys will enjoy uh, taking a, a journey into this shitty fantasy world that a 16-year-old wrote. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Aragon will start uploading on the 24th of January. That is this Friday at goingcast.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Aragon, I believe is what it's going to go up as. Um, also, you can listen to all of A Christmas Carol on goingcast.com right now. Uh, free from the podcast. It's just the the chapters. It's just the raw audio of the chapters. And that is the uh, procedure moving forward with the audiobooks that are present in the podcasts themselves. I will upload the podcast, or I will upload the audiobook within the podcast. Upon completion of that book, I'm just going to upload the entire book to its own thing on the website, separate from the podcast, if you want to re-listen to anything. So that's that's how it's going to go down. That way you're not listening to, like, chapter 6 of, of fucking Treasure Island or whatever, and in the middle I talk about, like, some new movie. You know, I, that's why it's not dated. It's a timeless thing, then. Um, unless I make references in the audiobook itself, in which case, well, that's kind of my whole steez, isn't it? So that is how things are shaking out to look for the foreseeable future. Um... I don't know what book is coming after Treasure Island. Uh, I really want to get to a point where I can have people vote on Patreon for which book comes next. But given the nature of uh, you know how long these books hang out, that opportunity probably won't come around very often. Because, hey, guess what? Books take time to read. And it'll take time for us to get through them. Especially if we pick like a really long book. Like if I, if I did a chapter a week of... Les Miserables, for example. There are 366 chapters in that fucking book. We'd be reading that book for seven years. So naturally, that's not one I want to go for. Plus, I like keeping these um, podcast lengths around an hour long. This one's actually gone very long this week because I had a lot of shit to talk about. Um, but I like to keep it around an hour long. However, if things change and people like, you know, the audiobooks and want to hear more of it per week, then we can make the podcasts longer. And we can get through books faster in that rate. Uh, things to think about. Um, naturally, if you have anything that you want to suggest, uh, ways to contact, you can contact me at uh, goingcast at gmail.com. You can reach out at facebook.com forward slash goingupcast. Shoot me your ideas. If you want to hear me read anything in the public domain for the podcast, just hit me up. That is that is totally, totally fine. Um, but if you want me to read anything else, then that's what goingcast.com forward slash store is all about. So there you go. Anyway, let us get back to my new favorite public domain book, Treasure Island. Chapter 6, The Captain's Papers. We rode hard all the way till we drew up before Dr. Livesey's door. Am I saying that name right? Livesey. Yeah, I guess. The house was all dark in the front. Mr. Dance told me to jump down and knock, and Dogger gave me a stirrup to descend by. The door was open almost at once by the maid. Is Dr. Livesey in? I asked. No, she said. He had come home in the afternoon, but he's gone up the hill to dawn to pass the evening away with the squire. So we go there, boys, said Mr. Dance. In time, as the distance was short, I did not mount, but ran with Dodger's stirrup leather into the lodge. Um, gates upon and up the long, leafless, moonlit avenue to where the white line in the hall buildings looked on either hand on great old gardens. 
Here Mr. Dance dismounted, taking me along with him and admitted at a word into the house. The servant led us down a matted passage and showed us at the end into the great library, all lined with bookcases and busts on top of them, where the squire and Dr. Livesey sat, pipe in hand, on either side of a bright fire. I had never seen the squire so near at hand. He was a tall man, over six feet high and broad in proportions. He had a bluff, rugged, and ruddy face, all roughened and reddened and lined in his long travels. His eyebrows were very black and moved readily and gave him the look of some temper. Not bad, you would say, but quick and high. Um... I, all right, so technically, uh, Fozzie in Muppet Treasure Island is the Squire Trelawney's rich halfwit nephew, I believe. Rich half? No, he's his son. Uh, what are what are halfwit sons for? So he's the he's the son. So Squire Trelawney Jr. So I'm going to give actual Squire Trelawney like an old old captain voice, a la Jerry Nelson, um, who's the guy that answers the door. And Muppet Treasure Island. <clears throat> Come in, Mr. Dancer. <laughs> he says, very stately and condescending. Good evening, Dance, said the doctor with a nod. Good evening to you, friend Jim. What good wind brings you here? I don't remember their voices. The supervisor stood up straight and stiff and told the story like a lesson. And you should have seen how the two gentlemen leaned forward and looked at each other and forgot to smug in their surprise and interest. When they heard of how my mother went back to the end, Dr. Livesey fairly slapped his thigh, and the squire cried, Bravo! And that broke his long pipe against the grate. Long before it was done, Mr. Trelawney, that, you will remember, was the squire's name. Thanks! Thank you for that. That, you will remember, was the squire's name. Will I? Will I remember? You're telling the story to them. Why are you reminding me, the reader? It's dumb. I don't like that line. That's some, that's some fucking amateur shit. Come on, Robert. You're better than this. Don't fucking JK rolling your crap. Better than this. God damn it. I was saying this the other day. I've read a couple of authors now, out loud. Um, and I've read fucking hundreds of books beyond this. Um, in terms of sheer writing ability, I feel like Dickens comes out on top. Like, what what's so great about Dickens' stuff is that it's incredibly well-written and he makes it look so fucking easy. Like, I'm reading Aragon, right? And that kid tries too hard. I'm reading George R. R. Martin, which is fine, but it's not perfect. I've read Tolkien before, and he goes a little bit over the top. And fucking Stevens in here is decent, but okay. Dickens could paint a goddamn masterpiece with a couple of well-chosen words, and, like, nothing seems out of place with Dickens. You know? Every word is, like either incredibly chosen with care or just happens to be the right one you know it's just like there's a simplicity to his shit and it is it's incredible how how well put together his shit is you know like i i can't help but wonder like there must be like a billion drafts but i'm sitting here going like nah man i mean dickens dickens probably got that shit in like a couple of tries he just he just had that gift he had that way with words where he could just get a piece of paper and a pencil and just write down a fucking masterpiece. So, that being said, I did not like Great Expectations. I loved A Christmas Carol. I loved A Christmas Carol. Um, but I did not like Great Expectations. So, um, you know, just saying for the record. Stevenson is fine. Um, I'm really curious to see how, how impactful the scenes on the open water are. And how menacing he could make Long John Silver. So those are those are the things I'm looking for, really, in this story. Um, I'm also really curious how this ends. 
Because I know how fucking Muppet Treasure Island ends, and I'm getting like a fucking, you know, a feeling that the uh, the original text might not be as kind. So we'll find out. Um. Anyway, uh, the Mr. Trelawney that you will remember is the swearing name had gotten up from his seat and was striding about the room, and the doctor, as if to hear the better, had taken off his powdered wig and sat there looking very strange indeed with his own closely cropped black pole. At last, Mr. Dance finished the story. Mr. Dance, said the squire, you are a very noble fellow. As for riding down that black atrocious miscreant, I regard it as an act of virtue, sir, like stamping on a cockroach. This lad Hawkins is a trump, I perceive. Hawkins, will you ring that bell? Mr. Dance must have some ale. And so, Jim, said the doctor, you have the thing that they will after have you. Here it is, sir, I said, and gave him the oilskin packet. German. The doctor looked it all over, and his fingers were itching to open it, but instead of doing that, he put it quietly in the pocket of his coat. Squire, he said, when Dance has had his ill, he must, of course, be off to his majesty's service, but I mean to keep Jim Hawkins here to sleep at my house, and uh, with your permission, I propose we should have up the cold pie and let him sup. As you will, Livesy, said the squire. I can discern better than cold pie. So a big pigeon pie was brought in and put on a side table, and I made a hearty supper. For I was as hungry as a hawk. Get it, because the last name's Hawkins. Ha 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 ha. While Mr. Dance was further complimented and at last dismissed. And now, squire, said the doctor. And now, Livesey, said the squire in the same breath. And one at a time, one at a time, laughed Dr. Livesey. You have heard this flint, I suppose? Out of him, cried the squire. Out of him, you say? He was the bloodthirstiest buccaneer that sailed. Blackbeard was a child to Flint. The Spaniards were so prodigiously afraid of him that I tell you, sir, I was sometimes proud he was an Englishman. I've seen his topsails with these eyes off Trinidad, and the cowardly shot of a rum puncheon that shared with put back, put back, sir, into the port of Spain. Well, I've heard of him myself in England, said the doctor, but the point is, uh, he had he money. Money, cried the squire. Have you heard the story? What were these villains after but money? What do they care for but money? For what would they risk their rascal carcasses but money? We shall soon know, replied the doctor. But if you're so confoundedly hot-headed and exclamatory that I cannot get a word in. What I want to know is this. Supposing that I have here in my pocket some clue to where Flint buried his treasure, will that treasure amount to much? Amount, sir, cried the squire. It will amount to this. If we were, if we have the clue you talk about, I fit out a ship in Bristol Dock and take you and Hawkins here along, and I'll have that treasure if I search a year. Very well, then, said the doctor. Now then, if Jim is agreeable, we'll open the packet. And he laid it out before him on the table. The bundle was sewn together, and the doctor had to get out his instrument case and cut the stitches with medical scissors. It contained two things, a book and a sealed paper. First, we'll try the book. The squire and I were both peering over his shoulder as he opened it, for Dr. Livesey had kindly motioned me to come round from the side table, where I had been eating to enjoy the sport of the search. On the first page, there were only some scraps of writing, such as a man with a pen in his hand might make for idleness or practice. One was the same as the tattoo bark. Billy Bones is fancy, and there was Mr. W. Bones mate, and no more rum. Off palm key, he got it, spelled with two T's. And some other snatches, mostly single words and unintelligible. Can I help wondering who it was that had got it with two T's? And what it with two T's was that he got? A knife in his back, as like as not. Oh, rhymes. Not much instruction there, said Dr. Livesey as he passed on. Next 10 or 12 pages were filled with a curious series of entries. 
there was a date at one end of the line and oh and i gotta sound some fun there we go at the other a sum of money in a common account books but instead of explanatory writing only varying numbers of crosses between the two on 12th of june 1745 for instance a sum of 70 pounds had plainly been come due to someone and that was nothing but six crosses to explain the cause in a few cases to be sure the name of a place would be added as off caracas or a mere entry of latitude and longitude at six degrees seven feet 20 inches 90 degrees two feet 40 inches I don't know how you read latitude and longitude aloud, but I gave it my best shot and I read it just straight. The record lasted nearly over 20 years. The amount of the separate entries growing larger as time went on, and at the end, a grand total had been made out after five or six wrong additions, and these words appended bones his pile. Can't make heads or tails of this, uh, said Dr. Livesey. The thing is as clear as noonday, cried the squire. This is the black-hearted hound's account book. These crosses stand for the names of the ships of the towns they sank or planted. The sums of the scoundrel's shares. Where he feared an ambiguity, you see he added something clearer. Off Caracas, now, you see here. And some were unhappy vessels bordered off that coast. God help the poor souls that manned her. Cor long ago. Right, said the doctor. See what it is to be a traveler, right? The amounts increase, you say, as you've rose in rank. There's little else in the volume, but a few bearings of places noted in the blank leaves towards the end and a table for reducing French, English, and Spanish monies to the common value. Thrifty man, cried the doctor. He clearly wasn't one to be cheated. And now, said the crowd, for the other. The paper had been sealed in several places with a thimble uh, by the way of seal, the very thimble perhaps I had found in the captain's pocket. The doctor opened the seals with great care and there fell out the map of an island with the latitude and longitude, soundings, names of hills, bays, and inlets, and every particular that would need to bring a ship to safe anchorage upon its shores. It's about nine miles long and five across, shaped like, uh, say, you might say, like a fat dragon standing up, and had two fine landlocked harbors. Then a hill in the center part marked the spyglass. There were several editions of a later date, but all the above, three crosses of red ink, two in the north part of the island and one in the southwest, between the last and the same red ink, in a very small, neat hand, um, very different from the captain's tottery characters, these words, bulk of treasure here. Over the back, in the same hand, written this further information. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing at a point of north of north-northeast, skeleton island, east-southeast, and by east, ten feet. The bar of silver is in the north cache. You will find it by the trend of the east hummock, ten fathoms south of the black crag with its face on it. The arms can be found, are easy found in the sand hill, north point, north inlet cape, bearing east a quarter north JF. I don't know what the fuck that means. Just far? Sure, why not? That was all, but it was as brief to me, and uh, it was brief as it was, and to me incomprehensible, it filled the squire and Dr. Livesey with delight. Livesey, said the squire. You'll give up these wretched practice at once. Tomorrow I start for Bristol in three weeks' time. Three weeks! Two weeks, ten days. We'll have a best ship, sir. The choicest crew in England. Hawkins shall come by as cabin boy. You'll make a famous cabin boy, Hawkins. You and Livesey are ship doctor and I admirable. We will take Red Ruth, Joyce, and Hunter. We'll have favorable winds, a quick passage. Not the least difficulty in finding the spot and money to eat. To roll in to play duck and drake with ever after. Trelawney, said the doctor, I'll go with you and I'll bail for it, so will Jim, and be a credit for the undertaking. There's only one man I'm afraid of. And who's that? cried the squire. Name it, dog. You, replied the doctor, for you cannot hold your tongue. We are not the only men who know of this paper. These fellows who attacked the entire bold, desperate blades for sure, and the rest who stayed aboard that luger, and more, I dare say, not far off or all in one, through thick and thin bound, that they'll get that money. 
We must none of us go alone till we get to the sea. Jim and I shall stick together in the meanwhile. You take Joyce and Hunter when you ride for Bristol. And from first to last, not one of us must breathe a word of what we found. Lizzie, returned the squire, you are always the right of it. I'll be as silent as the grave. As silent as the grave, he says. Many a moon ago, there came out a PS3 game from the likes of Level 5 and Studio Ghibli by the name of Nino Kuni The Wrath of the White Witch. And at the time, I did not own a PlayStation product, so I was not able to play this game firsthand, but I watched a YouTuber play it. I can't remember who at this time. But I watched it, and it looked real good. It was like Pokemon and a Ghibli movie, and it looked like it had a lot of heart, and the music was really good. And then it came out with a sequel called Nino Kuni 2... The Revenant King? Is that what it's called? I can't remember. Sounds right. Um, and I played that one uh, for like, pfft, like an hour. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's neat. And I never touched it again. Um, and then I was looking at uh, what was coming new to Netflix. Because uh, they like to pop up with shit every now and then. And it turned out they... Well, not Netflix. Well, it's, it has Netflix film. But it came out in Japan and Netflix just got the streaming rights to it. They made a movie about Nino Kuni called Nino Kuni. And it's not the same characters of either of the two video games. Um, it's kind of its own unique thing with the same generalized idea as the video game. And I know this podcast is supposed to be about things that make people happy and stuff like that. And I was really excited about this movie because um, I was like a big fan of the first one. And I liked the idea and I was like, oh, it should be good. And was, music was done by Joe Hisaishi. And I'm like, oh, he's fucking great. And to be fair, the music in the movie is really good. I don't know who fucking animated this, but it wasn't Studio Ghibli because they're not a thing anymore. It's like Team Ponoc or whatever the fuck. But they didn't do it either as far as I can tell. Which probably is a good thing because the movie's not very good. Um, first of all, I accidentally had subtitles on uh, when I started playing the movie and I've never seen a movie with worse subtitles. Like, somebody will be like, it's like every subtitle was different from what the words coming out of the character's mouths were. It was just inconsistent the meaning of the sentence remained the same but the word choice was just very fucking varied and it was super distracting so don't watch it that way or if you do watch it that way listen to the audio in a language you don't speak so you don't notice that it's horribly mismanaged um the animation's fine but the movie is so goddamn poorly paced and the character motivations while kind of making sense are dumb and i don't like them and I, like, I paused this movie because I was watching it, like, relatively late at night. And I'm like, I had to go to bed. And I'm like, oh, man, I'll just, I'll finish this tomorrow. I've got, like, 50 minutes left in the film. And I went, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not wasting any more time watching this movie. I sincerely doubt it'll stick the landing. Can't recommend this one, gang. It's, um, it's not worth it. I don't think it's worth it if you're a really big Nino Cooney fan. I don't think it's worth it if you like Studio Ghibli stuff. If you like the music, just listen to the like the OST on YouTube. It's just, it's not good. It's not. Um, and like, in terms of post-Ghibli Ghibli movies that have come out in recent years, like The Red Turtle and Mary and the Witch's Flower and this sack of shit, I think Mary and the Witch's Flower is probably the best one, but that one's still not very good. Like, it's like a solid C-, minus. you know? Like, sure, it's better than the other two, but I still fucking wouldn't put it in the DVD player. So, yeah, Nino Cooney, not, not so good, um, which, is, uh, which is a bummer, and can't, can't quite recommend that one. So, yeah, there you go, don't watch it, don't waste your time. Play the first game, that got a, like a remaster, and it's on PC, 
Um, that's real good. That's a really good game. It's nice and long. There's lots of cool characters. The world building is really neat. Um, it's it's solid. It's real. It's real good. Um, so I'd recommend that beforehand. And all the uh, cutscenes in that game were animated by Studio Ghibli back when it existed. So fucking a plus. They definitely do that. Do that. Don't watch this movie. If you like the first one, maybe play the second one. But I didn't. I don't like it as much. Because they kind of change what the game style is, and I didn't appreciate it all that much. First one's much more like a fucking Zelda Pokemon, like, dungeon world explorer open thing. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's more my speed. So, yeah. Play the first game. Don't watch the movie. It's crap. Let's get back to Treasure Island. Part 2. The Sea Cook. Chapter 7. I go to Bristol. <laughs> Ooh, I haven't done one of those in a while. <clears throat> it was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's, of keeping me beside him could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. Um, because some people really liked that chapter, but most people didn't. I would, I would say that's, um, that's a fair, that's a fairer thing for me to say, is that most people did not enjoy that chapter of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire where I did a southern accent for like 45 minutes straight. Now, I'm not saying the accent I just did was southern, but it was, um, you know, the idea of reading a whole chapter with, um, with an accent is, uh, uh, not a lot of people liked it, which is damn shame. It was fucking funny. Um, I'll do it with an Aragon chapter. I got some more reading to do after this. And what, what the fuck happened to Aragon? Hold on. There's a book around here. Um... What did I do? It. I spilled. Oh, there it is. I spilled uh, like a cup of milk earlier, and um, it went all over Aragon. It's dry, so it's fine. Um, but I was just wondering where the book was, so I can read that here in a little bit. Anyway, where was I? I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island of my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they called the Spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wondrous, wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the island was thick with savages with whom we fought. Sometimes <clears throat> full of dangerous animals that hunted us. And in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey with this addition to be opened in case of his absence by Tom Radruther Young Hawkins. Obeying this order we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old anchor in Bristol, March 1st, 17, who gives a fuck? Dear Livesey, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send these in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner, a child of might sailor, 200 ton, named the Hispaniola. Which is a great name. I got it through my old friend Blandly. I'm not saying his friend is Bland. His name is Blandly. Yeah, hello, my name is Blandly. Anyway, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising Trump. 
The Admiral Buffalo literally shaved in my slaved in my interest, and so I may say did everyone in Bristol as soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for. Treasured, I mean. Redruth, I said in interrupting letter. Doug Little lives, he will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's a better, right? Oh, growled the gamekeeper. Pretty rum if go, go if squaw ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. And at that, I gave up all contempt at commentary and read on. German. Blandly found himself the Hispaniola and by the most admirable management got her for a merest trifle. There's a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go to length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money and that the Hispaniola belonged to him and he sold it to me absurdly high. The most trans... Barren calumnies. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship. So far, there's not a hitch. The work people, to be sure, the rigors and whatnot were most annoyingly slow, but time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men in case of natives, buccaneers, and the odious French. Ah, the French. And I had to worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen to the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought with me the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock, when by merest accident I fell and talked with him. I found him he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol. I lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get the sea again. He had hobbled down that morning, and he said to get a smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched. So would you have been, and out of pure pity I engaged him in the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he has called, and he has lost a leg. But I regard it as a recommendation, um... Since it was lost in the country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension, Livesey. Imagine the admirable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, but it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows by the face of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were sort of freshwater swabs we had fear in our adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent dozen spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old tarpaulins trampling round the capstan. See what ho, hang the treasure, it is the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Livesey, come post, do not lose an hour if you will respect me. Yet long, uh, not yet long, let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother with Redworth for a guard, and then come at full speed to Bristol, John Trelawney, postscript. And I'll tell you that blindly, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, has found an admirable fellow for sailing master, a stiff man, with which I regret, uh, but in all other respects, a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate, a man named Arrow. I have a boatswain with pipes, livesies, so things shall go man-of-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver was a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a banker's account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn. She is a woman of color. A pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is his wife quite as much as the health that sends him back to roving. John Trelawney, PPS. Hawkins may stay in one night with his mother. John Trelawney. JT. You can fancy the excitement in which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if ever I despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who would, could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under-gamekeepers would have gladly changed places with him. Such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like the law among them. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as even to grumble. 
The next morning, he and I set out on foot to the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had been so long uh, had been a cause for discomfort, was gone from where the wicked cease from troubling. Uh, was gone where the wicked cease from troubling. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the squire had had everything repaired, the public rooms and the signs repainted, and added some furniture. Above all, a beautiful armchair for my mother uh, in the barn. I found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she should not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood for the first time my situation. I had thought up until that moment of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving, and now at the sight of this clumsy stranger who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had the first attack of tears. I'm afraid I let that boy a dog's life, for he was as new to the work. I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not too slow I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner, Redruth and I were afoot again on the road. I said goodbye to Mother in the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear Admiral Benbow, and since he was repainted, no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat, saber-cut cheek, and his old brass telescope. Next moment, we had turned around the corner, and my home was out of sight. Amazed that Hawkins read the letter about the one-legged man, and there's just no reaction. He's like, oh, wow, look at that. He doesn't have a leg. Oh, that's so sad. I bet he's a great cook. The mail picked us up at dusk at the Royal George on the Heath. On the Heath. I was wedged in between Redruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log uphill and down dale through stage after stage, for when I was awakened at last, it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street, and that day had already broken a long time ago. Where are we? I asked. Bristol, said Tom. Get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far down the docks to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither, we had to walk now, and uh, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work, and in another, there were men aloft high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived my by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all that had been far over the oceans. I saw besides many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and tarry pigtails, their swaggering clumsy sea walk. As if I had seen many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself to see in a schooner with a piping boatswain and a pigtailed singing seaman. Uh, to s what the fuck was that? It was supposed to be laughter, but apparently I just gagged on nothing. To see bound for an unknown island and to seek for buried treasure. I was still in this delightful dream. We came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in a stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and the captain's imitations of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo! The ship's company complete. Oh, sir, I cried. When do we sail? Sail, he said. We sail tomorrow. I think it's important every now and then to get out and about and explore the world around you and to really get back in touch with nature and so this past weekend i did just that i woke up at the crack of dawn six in order to get on a goddamn ferry and go across to the peninsula to one of my all-time favorite locations in the state of washington which is lake crescent out on the olympic peninsula it's about like halfway across the northern side of it. it takes about three hours one way in order to get there 
And so I woke up at the crack of dawn and I drove up to Edmonds, uh, which is the town north of me, and I hopped on the ferry. And I, like, I got there and I parked, turned my car off, and, like, three minutes passed before I turned my car back on and got on the ferry. And if you are familiar with ferry travel, you'll know that getting that sort of timing is really difficult with a ferry. Like, getting there and, like, pretty much instantly boarding is almost unheard of you're usually there for like at least an hour in between ferry arrival times so already my trip was off to a great start the reason i left so early was because i wanted to go out have this adventure come back and still have part of my day and at recording this it's still that same day and it's only 6 30 i did take like an hour nap uh but we'll get to that so i go across the peninsula and um i actually landed in kingston uh, washington on the other side before the sun had even really risen. Like the sky was brightening, but there was no visible sign of the sun being up. So for the first like two hours of my journey, I was doing it basically in the in like the pre-dawn light. And I just hit the road. Um, I barely had breakfast. I had a yogurt and like a protein shake. Cause I wasn't really hungry this morning. I was just like, I'll just get Starbucks or something on the road. And even though I drove past like three of them, I never pulled over and actually got shit. I was just like, I'll just keep going and I'll eat on the way back from the lake. And I get to the lake. The drive through was pretty uneventful. Um, once I hit the mountains, the, like the snow was on the side of the road, uh, fairly deep, you know, like a foot here and there, uh, driving through like Port Angeles and Squam and all those wonderful towns. Um, except for Port Gamble. Port Gamble creeps me the fuck out because it's too clean and too perfect. Um, it's like, it's like what those horrible nightmare, like, welcome to our town. We haven't had a murder in 30 minutes. You know, like everybody's got a secret in that town and they're all smiles and hugs and their houses are too perfect and they all look the same. Like it's too, it's too, I don't like it. It's too much. It's too, it's too neat. Two homeowners association-y. There needs to be some goddamn variety. That's the type of town where I would bring in an electric guitar and people would look at me askance and be like, Oh my heavens, how dare you disturb the peace? So, I don't like Port Gamble. There, I said it. There, I said it. Anyway, I keep on driving. And um, I get into Olympic National Park proper, uh, where Lake Crescent is. And it's super misty and it's super foggy. Um, and there are a bunch of pictures. I used to do a blog of pictures on the website then <laughs> shit i haven't uploaded i haven't updated that in fucking forever um mostly because in my head like the instagram kind of took that over um so if you want to see pictures of it just ch go check out um at going upcast on instagram um that is where you can find a lot of pictures uh from that trip and i'll be uploading more like as the days go on because i took like fucking 50 of them anyway I get to the lake and it's super misty and it's super foggy and there is a lodge that is on the shore of the lake called, guess what, Lake Crescent Lodge. That's right, but it was closed for the season. So when I pulled into the parking lot, I was literally the only person there and it was so goddamn quiet, but it was gently raining. It was so quiet, I was able to actually hear the sound of these really tiny raindrops hitting the surface of the still lake, which I actually recorded. And here it is!
I love I thought that sound was pretty neat. So there's that. And while I was there, just kind of like sitting on a log and being peaceful and shit, um, a duck came up. A little little mallard duck. I think it was mallard. It's the one with the green head. And um usually those little little uh, buckaroos are, are mated for life, but I didn't see any sign of the uh, the brown one. So maybe uh, maybe she was nesting or something. And he swam right up to me um, in what I can only presume was a practiced motion uh, in the hunt for food from strangers. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't have anything. And he just, like, kind of swam up and stood on the beach, like, a foot from me and just started, like, kind of hanging out. Like, he didn't really look at me so much. He was just, like, cleaning his feathers and scratching and fluffing up and wiggling his butt and doing all sorts of cute duck things. And I'm just chatting to him and doing, like, what's up? You picked a hell of a spot to hang out, duck. And I'm just taking big pictures and these incredible vistas and the how still the water was. And what's really cool by Lake Crescent is that the water is obscenely clear, uh, which is very uncommon in this neck of the woods. Um, usually our waters are pretty uh pretty opaque um because of just the nature like puget sound um while not the cleanest body of water like it's just it's just dark you just can't see anything in like visibility in puget sound is like fucking five feet in front of you it's it's just not very clear water but lake crescent like i stood on the end of a pier and i was able to look straight down and see the bottom of the water and I knew it was like a good 40 to 50 feet below me. And the reason it's so clear is because it doesn't have a lot of nitrogen in the water, um, which reduces the growth of algae, algae in, the, uh, in the waters. And that keeps it clear and pristine and gorgeous. It's just, it is absolutely gorgeous. Um, one of these days I need to go back up to the lodge when boat rentals are a thing and struck out on like a kayak or something and just fucking get out there it's a big ass fucking lake too it's the second deepest lake in washington it's 12 miles long it's over 600 feet deep um at its deepest point and it's fucking it's gorgeous it is absolutely gorgeous and i love it to pieces um and i really enjoyed going to that lake today because i've seen it on like a bright sunny day in the middle of summer um but i've never seen it like kind of rainy and gray and that's what i saw today and that was that was new for me and i loved it and I spent like a good hour there. Um, then I was like, maybe I'll hike to the falls. Cause I'm like, there was a mile and a half round trip hike to some waterfalls, like just behind the lake, um, up in the mountain, which is called fucking storm King mountain. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right. It's called storm King mountain. And there's the storm King mountain trail. Shit's fucking radical. Like I want my next D and D character spirit animal to be a duck. That worships the Storm King. Like, it just, I'm just going to pull everything from my fucking journey today. And I strike out on the on the trail, and I had these, um, these like, ski boot things that you put over your boots. They're like rubber things with uh, tungsten spikes that stick out the bottom, and it's supposed to give you extra traction in snow. And those fucking things worked, for sure. I was slipping and sliding all over the ice before I put those on, and once I put those on, it just gave me extra traction, and I wasn't slipping and sliding no more. Sounds like absolute horror nightmare sounds walking on asphalt and those things though because like the the spikes will hit at different times so it just sounds like weirdly atonal scratching in like the worst way so that sucked but I, I start walking out and I make it like like 10 minutes into the hike all bundled up scarves mittens extra jackets plushy shirt like I'm warm and um, a while ago, like a couple of days ago, I, uh, dropped the, um, 
bench press bar on my lower rib cage and I've had one of my ribs has been hurting ever since. Relatively certain it's like bruised or cracked or something. I'm not entirely sure, but it's not happy with me. And it makes it difficult to laugh or yawn or breathe deeply. So panting on the hike was causing an incredible amount of pain. Uh, so I just turned around and I went back to the car because I was like, I came here for the lake. I could not come here to hike. So I went back to the car and I gave up the hike for as a lost cause because I've seen the falls before and they're fine, but it's just like, I don't have this in me today. Um, so I got back in the car. Um, I also blame my not being able to do the hike on the fact that I had not eaten food that day. So could have had something to do with it. Anyway, I get back in the car and I start driving back towards Squim. And it's around this time that I realized I've got about 80 miles till empty and I have about 97 miles to go. And I was like, I've got to get gas somewhere. But I absolutely hate buying gas when it's super expensive. And so I'm driving around, um, not like looking for gas. Like I'm heading home and on the way back, I'm keeping my eyes open for gas. And I'm seeing like 350 and like 310, you know, just like, ah, just, oh God, it's expensive. And I hit Squim, um, which is a very nice town. I love Squim. It's got a lot of lavender farms and I love lavender. And it's a, it's a nice quaint little town. Um, it also gets like, 200 days of sun a year or something crazy like that like because of the the uh rain shed effect uh from being so close to mountains and being on this side of the mountains um they almost never see rain it's usually just like clear skies um which is very unusual for washington but squim is one of those one of those towns that really gets a lot of sun and uh which makes it a great spot to retire so naturally the uh the demographic of squim is a lot more advanced in age um but everybody in that town is like super friendly and i was driving around and i was looking for food um i knew there was a 50s diner that i'd eaten at before and i'm like that's probably a good option because the beauty of the 50s diners i can just sit at the counter and it's a lot less strange than i'm there by myself um because you know you're sitting at the counter and you're just like talking to the wait staff or whatever and you get food and leave and nobody really looks at you askance for sitting in a booth by yourself for example um, and so as I'm driving down this road, I look over to my right and I see like this big kind of shopping area and I saw the most beautiful thing in the world. I saw a Costco with Costco gas and I'm like, Oh, thank God, two fifty a gallon. And I was just I pulled right in, got my gas and I was so happy. I went inside Costco cause I'm like, I'm out of the peninsula. There's lots of snow on the ground. Maybe this Costco will have like different winter clothes than the one I have. Uh, which was by and large not true, but it did have this one type of flannel that mine didn't have. And it was like a flannel with like a thermal lining. So it's like a little thicker, but not super thick. I now have like five different types of flannel. It's, it's getting kind of crazy, but I really like flannel shirts. So I got that. I got that one shirt. I bought one thing at Costco. That's never happened to me before and probably never will again. So my bill at Costco was like fucking $10 cause it was a $10 shirt. Um, but I get back in the car and I drive to the diner and I get my burger, which is a, which was a blue moon burger. It had crispy onion straws on it, um, blue cheese and a brown sugar sauce. And I know that probably doesn't sound good, but as I was chewing it, like the, the funkiness of the blue cheese cut through the sweetness of the sugar and the sweetness of the sugar cut through the funkiness of the blue cheese. And then there was just a really well cooked patty in the middle and, it was pretty good. The the onion straws were kind of gummy, 
which is weird. It was like very bready. Um, so it took a lot to chew. Like my jaw got sore eating that burger, but it was, it was very tasty. Um, and I haven't had a burger like that in fucking a long time, you know, because of how healthy I am. I say that as I've got a beer in front of me. Fun fact, Guinness is the lowest calorie, non-low calorie beer that you can possibly get. I think this entire can is, um, it's 125 uh, calories, which is not fucking bad at all. At all. Like, fucking soda is un more unhealthy for you than this can of beer is. So, just for the record, for the record, Guinness is pretty goddamn good for, well, not, it's not good for you, but if you're going to drink a beer, it's an, it's a really good choice because it's so low calorie. Anyway, and it also has, um, what else does it have? Uh, it's got 1.1 grams of protein. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. No fat, 9.4 grams of carbohydrates. Like it's, I mean, come on. I mean, come on. Anyway, so I get my burger and I hit the road. Now at this time it is 1230. Okay, it's 12.30 in Squim. The next ferry, well, technically the next ferry left at 12.45, but I knew I wasn't getting in that one. The next ferry left at 1.30. And my goal was to be back in my place by 2. So I would have, you know, like, basically like 8 to 9 hours to do shit. So, the race was on. And I fucking hit the road. I don't know what part of the road it was. Um, but throughout this journey, my car got filthy. Like, just dust and mud just spit up fucking all over my car. And I thought about getting a car wash, but at this point, because um, I'm probably going to do a lot more driving tomorrow on my, my Sunday, um, I'll just get my car washed, like, after tomorrow when I'm just doing, like, normal comedy stuff. Um, but the race was on. And I was getting exceedingly frustrated by all the slow fucking drivers in front of me. And I'm like, they clearly either don't know when the next ferry is or they don't care when the next ferry is. But these motherfuckers are in my way. And so I'm like doing the thing where I'm like waiting for the road to to do the dot dot thing. And I try to pass and I just can't do it. And I tried that a lot and I was never able, except when the road got to like two lanes and then I was able to zip past like one car at a time. It just, I was constantly fighting my way forward trying to get to a point where I can just open it up and go. Um, but through all that traffic and the fact that it was pretty windy, I ended up getting to the ferry terminal at like 1.35, I want to say. I was parked in line for the ferry as the ferry was like pulling away from the dock. I missed it by like a couple of minutes. And I can't help but thinking like, if I didn't go into Costco and get a single flannel shirt, I would have made the 1.30 ferry. That was the thought I had. And once I got to the ferry line, with the next ferry being at 2.30 an hour later, um the the tiredness hit me how exhausted i was i had been awake for like eight hours at this point and now i've been awake for 12 13 uh technically and like i just took a power nap um in the car and i kind of like blinked myself awake and the next ferry was there it was the exact same ferry boat i had taken earlier that morning which kind of made me smile being like, okay, I was meant to take this one to kind of really bookend this journey. And I get onto the ferry and, you know, I, I hop up onto the upper deck, which I always do. The fresh, like, sea breeze, taking pictures of Mount Rainier off in the distance. It was just beautiful. And 
this ferry ride from Kingston to Edmonds is about 20 minutes. Like, it's pretty fucking quick, um, which makes it very convenient uh, if you want to just, like, escape uh, the mainland for a bit. I know the peninsula is still technically connected, but I know when you take a ferry, it feels like you're going to an island. Which, to be fair, you could. There are dozens of islands in the Puget Sound straight of Juan de Fuca area. And I get on the other side, and I drive down, and I get home at, like, 3.10. Like, pretty close. Um, and then I was super exhausted and basically took a nap and woke up and had food, and now I'm doing laundry and talking to you guys. And that was my that was my trip to Crescent Lake. If you ever get the chance, I would highly recommend it. It is a fucking gorgeous lake. The peninsula is just phenomenal. I absolutely love it. It is an untouched paradise of temperate rainforest and wildlife and gorgeous like glacier carved fjords and valleys and it's just it is superb some of the greatest natural land in the continental united states can be found in washington and that's why i love this goddamn state so much it is so fucking beautiful uh, it's just, it's the best. You get the ocean, you get the mountains, you get the, the dry desert plains of Eastern Washington. You get like every interesting climate biome in the state of Washington. You get it all. It's, it's phenomenal. And it's all just hours away. It's all within driving distance. That's the best part. Two fucking huge mountain ranges. Oh man. It's just, it's superb. I love this state. It is, it's the best. Go check out Crescent Lake. Go check out nature in your own local area. Like get out and about reconnect go to like go to like a pond and look for tadpoles you know get some bug spray go camping go camping one night camping's fun oh man get them about and reconnect that's what i did somebody texted me uh while i was at the, at the lake and they were like what did you find and i texted back i found peace and quiet that's what i found at the lake it was fucking rejuvenating and i would highly recommend you check it out oh also um on the fair ride back, uh, I noticed that the water hitting the underside of the boat had kind of a rhythm to it. And so I recorded that too. Here's that sound. I don't know, I just like recording sounds and throwing them in there. So I hope you enjoyed this. Anyway, let's get back to Treasure Island. Chapter uh, 8. At the sign of the, quote, spyglass. When I had done breakfasting, the squire gave me a note addressed to John Silver. Not long, John Silver. Just John Silver. We're at the sign of the spyglass and told me I should easily find the place by following the line of the docks and keeping a bright lookout for a little tavern with a large brass telescope for a sign. I set off, overjoyed at this opportunity to see more of the ships and seamen, <coughs> and pick my way among the great crowd of people and seamen and carts and bales for the docks that was now at its busiest until I found the tavern in question. I added that <coughs> second seaman. It was a bright enough little place of entertainment. A bright enough little place. Alright, well, I suppose that's fine. The sign was newly painted. The windows had neat red curtains. The floor was cleanly sanded. There was a street on either side and an open door on both, which made the large, loud, or large low room pretty clear to see in, in spite of clouds of tobacco smoke. 
The customers were mostly seafaring seamen, and they talked so loudly that I hung at the door, almost afraid to enter, for the room was just chock-a-block full of seamen. As I waited, a man came out of the side room, and at a glance, I was sure he must be Long John. Not Long John Silver. It was Long John. His left leg was cut off close by the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain and pale, but intelligent and smiling. Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved among the tables, and with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for the more favored of his guests. Now, to tell you the truth, from the very first mention of old Long John, not Long John Silver, it was Long John. In Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind. Sorry, um, I just, I just had it. I just smiled there for a second because I'm like, I'm doing some really dumb jokes, and I can just picture how that will go down for for y'all when you listen to it, and ah, it just makes me happy. Anyway, in Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that he might prove to be the very one-legged sailor whom I had watched so long in old Benbow. But one look at the man was before me was enough, because you are blithe and an idiot. I had seen the captain, and Black Dog, and the Blind Man Pew, and I thought I knew what a buccaneer was like. A very different creature, according to me, from this clean, pleasant-tempered landlord. I plucked up the courage at once and crossed the threshold and walked right up to the man where he stood, propped on his crutch, talking to a customer. Mr. Silver, sir? I said, holding out a note. Yes, mi- Oh, uh, no, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> oh, Jim. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, me lad, he said. Such is my name, to be sure. And who may you be? And then he saw the let- the squire's letter and seemed to give him something almost like a start. Oh, he said quite loud and offering his head. I see. You're our new cabin boy. Pleased I am to see you. Oh, is he? It's kind of, it's kind of Australian almost. Um, Smart as paint, you are, lad. Smart as paint. And I think, I think I'll go with that. I can't do a Tim Curry. I would love to be able to do a Tim Curry. But it's just like, you know. Outside of a, <laughs> oh Jim, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being a pirate. Like there's nothing, there's nothing Tim McGurry about that. I'll just make him Australian. I think that'll be fun. That'll be fun for me. Took my hand in his large, firm grasp. Mm. Just then, one of the customers at the far side broke suddenly, made for the door. It was close by him, and he was out in the street in a moment. Before his, but his hurry had attracted my notice. I recognized him at a glance. It was the tallow-faced man, wanting two fingers, who would come first. To the Admiral Benbow. Um, German. Oh, I cried. Stop him. It's Black Dog. Ah, too easy, mate. I don't care two coppers who he is, cried Silver. But he hasn't paid a score. How do you run and catch him? On the other side, who was nearest the door, leapt up and started in pursuit. Um, if he were Admiral Ock, he shall pay his score, cried Silver. And then relinquishing my hands. Who did you say he was? Um, said, uh, God damn it. I don't know what voice I want to do for Silver. He's so fucking cool. Um, god damn it. I don't want to make one Australian. What do I want to do for Long John Silver? What's my coolest voice? Patrick Warburton? Hmm. It needs something with grit. It needs it needs grit. That's what it needs. I don't want to make him moody. Hmm. What else do I have with grit? Small as pint, you are that. Hmm. This requires some thinking. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. In my house. Hmm. 
I almost wish I could put this to a vote. Long John Silver. He's a pirate. He's a kindly pirate. Um, one-legged Tim Curry. Ha, ha, ha. Hmm. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try something and see how it goes. Who did you say he was? He asked. Blackwater. That's just, it turns into, yeah, who cares? Dog, sir, I said. Has Mr. Trelawney, has Mr. Trelawney not told you the Buccaneers? He was one of them. So, cried Silver, in my house, Ben Run and Help Harry. One of those swabs he was. Was he drinking with you, Morgan? Step up here. A man whom he called Morgan, an old, gray-haired, mahogany-faced sailor, came forward pretty sheepishly, rolling his quid. Now, Morgan, said Long John very slowly, you never clapped your eyes on that black, black dog before, did you now? Not I, sir, said Morgan with a sleep. Didn't you know? You didn't know his name, did you? No, sir. By the powers, Tom Morgan, it's as good for you. Um, it's exclaimed the lander. If you had been mixed up with a lock of that, you never would have put another foot in my eyes. You may lay that. And what was he saying to you? I don't rightly know, sir, answered Morgan. Do you call that hair on your shoulders or a blessed dead eye? <laughs> Cried Long John. Don't rightly know, don't you? Perhaps you don't rightly happen perhaps you don't happen to rightly know who you are speaking to, perhaps. Come now, what was he, John? Voyages? Captain ships? Piper? What was talking? He was talking to Keyholland, answered Morgan. Keyholland, was you? A mighty suitable thing, too, and you may lay to that. Get back to your place for a lever, Tom. It's, yeah, I'm working on it. It's evocative of Tim Curry. That's what that's what kind of what I'm, what I'm going for. And then, as Morgan rolled back to his seat, Silver added to me in a confidential whisper that was very flattering, as I thought. He's quite an honest man, Tom Morgan. Holy stupid. And now, he ran again aloud, let's see. Black Dog, no. I don't know the name, not I. Yeah, I kind of think I've... Yes, I've seen the swap. He used to come in here with a blind beggar, he used. That he did, you may be sir. You may, may be sure, I said. I knew the blind man too. His name was Pew. It was, cried Silver, quite excited. Pew, that was his name for crit for certain. Oh, he looked a shark, he did. But we run down this black dog now. There'll be news for Captain Trelawney. Ben's a good runner. Few seamen run better than Ben. He should run down hand over hand by the powers. He talked to Keelall and did he? Or Keelall him? <laughs> All the time he was jerking out these phrases, he was stumping up and down his tavern on his crutch, slapping tables with his hands and giving such a show of excitement as would have convinced an old Bailey judge or a Bow Street runner. My suspicions... I've been thoroughly reawakened on finding Black Dog at the Spyglass, and I watched the cook narrowly. But he was too deep and too ready and too clever for me, and by the time the two men had come back out of breath and confessed they had lost track in the crowd and scolded like thieves, I would have gone bail for the innocence Long John Silver. See you now, Hawkins, he said. Here's a blessed hard thing on a man like me now, ain't it? As Captain Trelawney, what he, what's he to think? Here I have this confounded son of a Dutchman sitting in my house drinking my own rum. Here you comes and tells me of it plain, and here I'll leave it to give us all the slit before my blessed deadlights. Now, Hawkins, you do me the justice with the captain. You're a lad, you are, but you're smart as paint, you are, lad, smart as paint. I see that when you first come in. Now, here it is. What could I do with this old timber I hobble on? When I was an A.B. Master Marine, I'd have come alongside him hand over hand and broached him to the brace of old shanks, I would. But now... And then all of a sudden he stopped and his jaw dropped as though he had remembered something. The score! He burst out. Three goes all run. Why, shiver me timbers. I ain't forgotten my score. 
and falling on a bench, he laughed until the tears ran down his cheeks. I could not have helped joined, and we laughed together, peel after peel, until the tavern rang again. Why, what a precious old sea calf I am, he said at last, wiping his cheeks. You and me should get on well, Hawkins. For I take my Davy, I should be rated ship's boy. But come now, stand by to go about it. This won't do. Duty is duty, Miss, miss Mates. I'll put on me old cockra hat, step alongside of you to cut my trill only, and put this here affair. For mind you, it's serious, young Hawkins. And neither you nor me comes out of it with what I should make so bold as to call credit. Nor you neither, says you not smart. None but the pair of us smart. But dash me buttons. That was a good in about my score. But dash me buttons. Everybody's new favorite. It's 2020. Everybody's new new slang phrase. Dash me buttons. Dash me buttons hard. And he began to laugh again. And that's so heartily that uh, though I did not see the joke as he did, I was again obliged to join him in his mirth. <laughs> On our little walk along the quays, he made himself the most interesting companion, telling me about the different ships as we passed the rig, tonnage, nationality, and explaining the work that was going forward. How one was discharging, another taking in cargo, and a third making ready for sea. And every now and then telling me some little anecdote of ships or seamen, <clears throat> or repeating nautical phrase till I had learned it perfectly began to see that here was one of the best possible shipmates. When we got to the end, the squire and Livesey were seated together fishing a quart of ale with a toast in it. Okay. Before they should go aboard the schooner on a visit of inspection, Long John told the story from the first to the last with a great deal of spirit and the most perfect truth. That's how it was. It were now what? Hawkins, he would say now and again. And I could always bear him entirely out. The two men regretted that Black Dog had got away, but we all agreed there was nothing to be done. And after he had been complimented, Long John took up his crutch and departed. Um, all hands aboard by four this afternoon, shouted the squire after him. Oh, sir, cried the cook in passage. Well, squire, said Dr. Livesey, I don't put much faith in your discoveries as a general thing, but I will say this John Silver suits me. The man's a perfect trump, declared the squire. And now, added the doctor, Jim may come on board with us, may he not? To be sure he may, said the squire. Take your hat, Hawkins, and we'll see the ship. Ah, ah, Long John. Ah, Long John Silver is his name. What a, what a, what a gentleman of fortune he is. <laughs> so, I finally got back on the bandwagon of one of my all-time favorite things, which I have not witnessed in quite some time. And that is Critical Role, where a bunch of nerdy-ass voice actors sit around and play Dungeons and Dragons. I've recently listened to, like, three episodes, slowly getting caught back up. They're on episode, like, 90. I'm on episode 69, which I've been told by several people is, like, an emotional roller coaster of an episode. So I'm actually going to physically watch this one. Um, all the other ones, I'm just listening to it on the podcast. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Critical Role is really fucking good. And for a while there, Campaign 2 just wasn't doing it for me. Like, I didn't really care about the characters and I didn't care about what they were doing. It was just nothing there for me. Um, but after a while of kind of thinking about it, um, I what, what really did it for me was the fan art is, is what changed my mind. Because when you're watching it and listening to it, it, you can't help but just think about the people there, you know? Um, like, I'm so used to Travis being Grog, and I couldn't make the jump in my head for him to be Ford. You know, I just couldn't do it. 
in my head, they were all just like pretending to be these other characters. Um, but I had to disassociate the actor from the character. And then I got a little bit more into it. Like seeing fan art of all these characters, like in the bathhouse, just like having a good time or at a bar. And they're all like smiling and joking and stuff like that. Or, you know, they're grieving for lost friends and stuff like that. Like once the characters started to become a bit more prevalent in my head, then I was able to kind of differentiate and get more into it. It's similar to why I enjoy the Adventure Zone graphic novel so much, because it differentiated between the McElroys and Magnus, Taco, and Merle. Like, Magnus, Taco, and Merle became separate entities in my head, not just extensions of the characters, but their own thing. And it was so much easier to do that in the comic book than it was in the podcast. Um, also, quick side note, The Adventure Zone is becoming an animated series on NBC's new streaming service, Peacock, which comes out in April, I believe, of this year. So that'll be really fucking cool. I wonder if the McElroys will come back to voice their characters or if they will get voice actors. I don't particularly know. God knows. I don't think the show would be the same if somebody else provided the voices, but similar things have happened before, so who the fuck knows. Um, but I'm very excited to see The Adventure Zone balance arc animated. So that will be cool. I wonder how many episodes it's going to be. If each episode of the podcast is like an episode of the show, then that's like 70 episodes of the show. Um, I don't know. I'm sure they do though. And I'm very excited to learn more about it if I ever eventually get caught up on my bim bam, which at this point seems unlikely. Um, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, yeah, Critical Role is just, they, they, they put on a hell of a show, you know? And I, I could talk about their, their fucking amazing D&D skills and all the good stuff they've done for charity and how awesome all of their goddamn merch is. Am I wearing... I am. I'm wearing one of their shirts right now. I'm wearing my Keyleth Fish shirt. Like, I goddamn love Critical Role. My fucking mouse mat is a fucking Critical Role thing. And I just... I love it. All the dice I use is Critical Role dice. And I actually just bought some Critical Role stuff today. Like a blanket and a new dice set. Um, because, you know, I wanted it now that I'm, like, kind of really back into it. Um, and plus, like, my place of, of work kind of carries some of the Critical Role stuff, because we, um, it's a, it's a gaming store, and they like to sell stuff like that, and I can go in and support my store and support Critical Role at the same time, and it's fucking, it's the best. Um, but I, I love Critical Role, and if you like podcasts, and you like D&D, and you like Vidya games, or if you just like really goddamn good compelling stories, Critical Role will do that. I will say season two takes a minute to really get going, but once you disassociate the characters from the actors and give them their own chance to breathe and let you know what they're about, the show does have something to offer. Like, for a while there, I was really into Vox Machina because Vox Machina was a, a tale of heroes against the, the evils of the world, and they would defeat these monstrous, horrible entities like Vecna and the Chroma Conclave and the Briarwoods, like beings of incredible evil that would go up against the forces of good, and Vox Machina would come down and bring the hammer of justice upon them every time. That's what Vox Machina was all about, and I love that. I love that classic tale of good versus evil. That's what the balance arc was too, right? Uh, like, these these things are so fucking similar. Both Critical Role and The Adventure Zone started good versus evil, big, epic conflicts. Then, we get to season two. Season two of Critical Role and Amnesty. Kind of just the loose association of a bunch of dipshits. 
Like, these aren't heroes, really, you know? They all have flaws. They're a lot more human in reality. You can relate to these characters a lot easier because they have flaws and drinking problems and have histories of being stealers and have murdered in the past, like family members and family members of their friends and they didn't know about it until later. Like, there's, there's all sorts of fucking horrible conflicts in these past. But because it wasn't the good versus evil kind of traditional storyline, it wasn't quite what I wanted at first. But once I got into who these people were and invested in their stories, it actually became a lot more realistic, you know? It became what, to me, makes sense in the story in that these aren't people destined to be heroes. They're people who kind of bumblefucked their way into heroic deeds and inadvertently caused some dope shit to happen. It was not because they were, like, you know, prophesized. They're just there and happened to be in a position to do some good. You know, that's what irritated me about Harry Potter. Dude's fucking prophesized. Shit's dumb. What happened? Like, say what you will about Aragon. He just fucking stumbles upon that shit. I know later on they're like, you were destined to have this. Yeah, no, fuck, shut up. It just happened upon it. It just happened to him. So, you know, say what you will about this terrible book that I'm waving around in my hand. But, you know, kind of, sort of, getting what, getting what I'm putting down. So, yeah, Critical World Season 2 does does it for me now. Um, it didn't for a while, but, you know, here we are, 69 episodes in, and now I'm invested. Um, which also goes against one of my things where I'm like, a really good piece of media should hook you right out of the gate. Like, no show should be a show that you have to tell your friends like, oh yeah, it's kind of slow in the beginning, but it really gets going around episode 69. No one's gonna fucking watch that show. That's obscene. Any show that gets good around episode 69 is not a good show, objectively. Should get you in the first fucking episode. Scrubs got me the first fucking episode. Avatar The Last Airbender got me the first fucking episode. Batman The Animated Series got me the first fucking episode. Witcher got me in the first fucking episode. Actually, The Witcher got me in the second episode. And that was one of the best. But it's like, it's gotta get you quick. You know? If it takes time to get good, that is not time I want to spend watching it. That's like my thing. It's like, it needs... Because the people will be like, well, sometimes it just takes a minute to grow. Yeah, but there are so many examples of media that get good right away. They knew what they were doing. The first episode of Game of Thrones is a masterpiece of this shit. So, yeah, like, it is possible, and people do it all the goddamn time, all right? So, that's, now I'm just kind of rambling. Go watch Critical Role. That was the point of this of this block of shit, is that Critical Role is really good. You should watch to it. And listen to it on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you can find your podcast. It's all fucking free. It's goddamn incredible. And, the beauty of getting caught up in Critical Role now and the fact that there are like 69 episodes into season two, you have 115 episodes of season one to watch. Each one is at least three hours long, at least. This is a wealth of content. Now, finding episodes of Critical One is difficult because of like on being on Geek and Sundry and they're not on Spotify, so you actually have to watch it. But if you get into it and get through those kind of awkward weird beginning steps I'm, I promise you it's a hell of a story it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry you'll sit on the edge of your seat it gets bonkers so you guys should experience the story it is very good or just wait um for like summer of next year when uh the legend of vox machina animated series comes out on amazon prime
as a result of their Kickstarter. It's going to be two seasons at least to start. And once people realize how popular it is, hopefully it'll become even more of a thing. So you could just do that. It's going to be the same stories. So might be a little bit easier to consume. Plus it'll be animated and that'll be neat. So anyway, let's get back to Treasure Island and see how Jim is doing. This Spaniolo lay some way out. And we went under the figureheads and round the sterns of many other ships and their cables sometimes granted underneath our keel and sometimes swung above us. At last, however, we got alongside and we were met and saluted as we stepped aboard by the mate, Mr. Arrow, a broad old sailor with earrings in his ear. Well, that's where earrings live. Well, not always. I guess, does, does the name earring change with the part of the body it's currently pierced in? Nipplings. Yes. Anyway. And a squint. He had the squire. He and the squire were very thick and friendly, but I soon observed that things were not the same between Mister Trelawney and the captain. This last was a sharp-looking man who seemed angry with everything on board, and was soon to tell us why. For we had hardly got down into his cabin when a sailor followed us. Captain Mollet. Captain Mollet. Nope. Captain Smollett, sir, axing, axing to speak with you. He said, "I'm always at the captain's orders. Show him in." So, uh, uh, said the squire. I'm always the cap. Okay. I am always at the captain's orders, Sherman, said the squire. The captain, who was close behind his messenger, entered at once and shut the door behind him. Well, Captain Smollett, what have you to say? Um, <clears throat> uh, oh. oh, well, I hope all shipshape and seaworthy. Well, sir, said the captain, better speak plain, I believe, even at risk of offense. I don't like this cruise. I don't like this men. And I don't like my officer. That's short and sweet. Perhaps, sir, you don't like the ship? Inquired the squire very angrily. Angry. As I could see. I can't speak as to that, sir, having not ha not having seen her trade, said the captain. She is a very clever craft, more I cannot say. Possibly, sir, you may not like your employer either, said the squire. But here, Dr. Livesey, Captain, stay a bit, he said. Stay a bit. No use of such questions as to that, but... To produce ill feeling. The captain has said too much or he has said too little, and I'm bound to say that I require an explanation of his words. You don't say, like the cruise. Now why? I was engaged, sir, in what we will call sealed orders to sail this ship for that gentleman where he should bid me, said the captain. So far, so good. But now I find that every man before the mast knows more than I do. I don't call that fair. Now do you? No, said Dr. Lipsy. I don't. Next says the captain. You learn we're going after treasure here from my own hands, mind you. Now treasure is a meticulous work. Yeah, I don't like treasure voyages on any account. I don't like them above all when they are secret and when, begging your pardon, Mr. Trelawney, the secret has been told to the parrot. Silver's parrot? asked the choir. It is a way of speaking, said the captain. Blabbed, I mean. It is my belief neither of you, German, you gentlemen know what you're on about, but I'll tell you my way of it, life or death, and a close run. That's all clear, and I dare say true enough, replied Dr. Livesey. We take the risks, but we are not so ignorant as you believe us. Next, you, sh you say you don't like the crew. Are they not good seamen? I don't like them, sir, replied Captain Smollett. And I think I should have, had to cho I should have the choosing in my own hands. If you go to that, 
Perhaps you should, replied the doctor. My friend should perhaps have taken you along with him, but the slight, if there was one, was unintentional. And you don't like Mr. Arrow? I don't, sir. I believe he's a good seaman, but he's too free with the crew to be a good officer. A mate should keep himself to himself. Shouldn't drink with the men before the mast. Do you mean he drinks? Required the squire. No, sir, replied the captain. Only that he's too familiar. Well, now, and the sort and the log of it, captain, asked the, oh, the doctor. Um, tell us what you want. Well, gentlemen, are you determined to go in this cruise? Like iron, answered the squire. Very good, said the captain. Then, as you heard me, my very patiently saying things that I could not prove, hear me a few more words. They're putting the powder in the arms in the forehold. Now you have a good place under the cabin. Why not put them there? First point. Then you are bringing four of your own people with you, and they tell me some of them are to be berthed forward. Why not give them the berths beside the cabin here? Second point. Any more? Asked Mr. Trelawney. One more, said the captain. There's been too much blabbing already. Far too much, agreed the doctor. I'll tell you what I've heard myself, continued Captain Smollett. You have a map of an island, and there are crosses on the map that show where the treasure is, and that the island lies, and then you named the latitude and longitude exactly. I never told, cried the squire, to a soul. And the hand knows it, sir, returned the captain. Livesey, it must have been you or Hawkins, cried the squire. It doesn't matter who it, or doesn't matter who it was, replied the doctor. I can see that neither he nor the captain paid much regard to Mr. Trelawney's protestations. Neither did I, to be sure, so he was... Uh, he was so a loose talker, yet in this case, I believe he was really right and that nobody had told the situation on the island. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, continued the captain, I don't know who has this map, but I make it a point. It shall be kept secret even from me and Mr. Arrow. Otherwise, I would ask you to let me resign. I see, said the doctor. You wish us to keep this matter dark and to make a garrison of the stern part of the ship, manned by my friend's own people, provided with all arms and powder on board. In other words, you fear a mutiny. Sir said Captain Smollett. With no intention of taking offense, I deny your right to put words in my mouth. No captain, sir, would be justified in going to sea at all if he had grounds enough to say that. As for Mr. Arrow, I believe him thoroughly honest. Some of the men are the same. All may be for what I know. But I am responsible for the ship's safety and the life of every man jack aboarder. I see things going, I think, not quite right. And I ask you to take certain precautions and let me res or let me resign my berth. And that's all. Captain Smollett, began the doctor with a smile, did you ever hear the fable of the mountain and the mouse? You'll excuse me, I dare say, uh, but you remind me of that fable. When you came in here, I staked my wig, you meant more than this. Mm, doctor, said the captain, you are smart. When I came here, I meant to get discharged. I had not thought that Mr. Trelawney would hear a word. No more would I, cried the squire. Had Livesey not been here, I should have seen you to the deuce. As it is, I heard you. I will do as you desire, but I think the worst of you. That as you please, sir, the captain. You'll find I do my duty. And with that, he took his leave. Trelawney, said the doctor, contrary to my notions, I believe you have managed to get two honest men on board with you, that man and John Silver. Silver, if you like, cried the squire. But as for that intolerable humbug, I declare I think his conduct unmanly, unsailory, and downright un-English. Well, said the doctor, we shall see. When we came on deck, the men had already begun to take out the arms and the powders, yo-ho-hoing, at their work while the captain and Mr. Arrow stood by superintending. The new arrangement was quite to my liking. The old schooner had been overhauled. Six berths had been made a stern out of what had been the after part of the main hold, and this set of cabins was joined to the galley and forecastle by the spared passage on the port side. 
It originally meant that the captain, Mr. Arrow, Hunter, Joyce, the Doctor, and the Squire were to occupy these six berths. Now, Redruth and I were to get two of them, and Mr. Arrow and the captain were to sleep on deck in the companion, which had been enlarged on each side till you almost have, might have called it a roundhouse. Very low it was still, of course, but there was room to swing two hammocks, and even the mate seemed pleased with the arrangement. Even, perhaps, had been doubtful as to the screw, but that is only to guess, for as you shall hear, we had not long the benefit of his opinion. Ah, that's right, because he dies. We were hard at work chaining... Oh, spoilers. We were hard at work chaining the powder... Changing the powder in the berth when the last man or two and Long John, along with them, came off in a shore boat. Cook came up the side like a monkey for cleverness, and as soon as he saw what was doing, um, so ho, mates, he said, what's this? We're at a change in the powder... Uh, we're a changing of the powder, Jack. That's this one. Why, by the powers, cried Long John. If we do, we'll miss the morning tide. My orders, said the captain shortly. You may go below, my men. Hand will, hands will want for supper. Ah, oh, sir, answered the cook, touching his forelock. He disappeared at once into the direction of the galley. That's a good man, captain, said the doctor. Very... Very likely, sir, replied Captain Smalley. Easy with that, easy with that, men. Easy. He ran on to the fellows who were shifting the powder, then suddenly observing me, examining the swivel we carried midships, a long brass nine. Here you, ship's boy, he cried. Out of that. Off with you to the cook and get some work. And then, as I was hurrying off, I heard him say quite loudly to the doctor, I'll have no favorites on my ship. I assure you, I was quite, um, I was quite of the squire's way of thinking and hated the captain deeply. Oh, small, it's fine. What's wrong with old, old Kermit the Frog? Ain't nothing wrong with Kermit the Frog. But I will tell you some bad news. Uh, we've reached, we've reached the end of the, end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Going Upcast. We are about to set sail in the Hispaniola, of all things. <laughs> and I will see you all next week for another brand new episode of the Going Upcast. See you later. See you later.